0: <clears throat> All right, so the title of, of this study is the Sedes Doctrinae. Uh, does anyone know what that means? Oh, not you. <laughs> uh, anyone know? <laughs> anyone else know what that means? Uh, yeah, <laughs> good. I just wanted to see if you read the bulletin. Yeah. Um, Sedes is seat or seats, and uh, the Doctrinae is doctrine. So the, the Sedes Doctrinae are the the seat or the base of doctrine. Uh, we would call this also uh, like proof passages. you so say, uh, somebody says, um, show me in the Bible that baptism saves and gives the forgiveness of sins. right? And then you would show, find this verse in the Bible. Things like this. Uh, throughout history, this sort of idea has been um, used in academia. Uh, it's called the Lot- classici, uh which is, means classical places. So where you would find the classical teachings or things in books or whatever this might be. Um, <clears throat> it's from a classic word, work that's, that's often cited. Uh, there were certain categories of things. Uh, so Aristotle, for example, came up with certain Lotzi. Uh What is a person? How do you define person or how do you define nature? Uh, where do we go to find the meaning of this or that or fortune or things like this? So it's a term that's applied by Melanchthon, Philip Melanchthon. Uh, he wrote a book, the Lotzi Communis. So the common, uh, uh, the, 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 the common places or the common teachings. Uh, and he, so he borrowed this from from them, Lutherans use this view or this word to refer to the clear passages of Scripture that treat individual doctrines that we would call, or individual uh, articles of faith that we would call proof passages. So, <clears throat> the reason I'm uh, I'm doing this is because uh, actually Jeff gave me the idea. I was ca- kind of struggling to find a Bible study topic for this next six to seven weeks before we're. We're um, partially in the uh, New Sanctuary. <clears throat> and coming off of this idea of the Lutheran approach, the outreach, I wanted to talk about the Sadist Doctrinae, which the point there is to say, you are going to get questions in your own homes, in your own vocations, at work, co coworkers, and things like this. It's just naturally going to come up and people say, well, why do you, you know, you're pregnant, and then you give birth to the baby, and then you have the baby baptized. And then your coworkers say, well, why did you do that? Okay? Then what are you going to say? You, to just say, well, that's just what we do. Okay, that's an answer. It's not good. Um, but it is an answer. You could say, well, that's just how we do it. Why do you guys sing hymns? Why do you guys have the liturgy? That's just what we do. Uh, the point of this is to kind of take you out of a simplistic um, answer like that. And to be able to point to the scriptures. And I know... <clears throat> We draw our doctrine. Here's the point. We draw our doctrine from all of the scriptures, all of it. However, there are passages in scripture that illuminate uh, other parts of the scriptures and are are clear. They're understandable. And I want you to be able to know those passages uh, like the back of your hand so that you can quote them. Now, I know for baptism, we have, I don't know, like 15 to 20 different verses that could show what baptism is. And maybe knowing 15 to 20 verses is great, you can work up to it, but you got to start somewhere. So what I've decided to do is that we'll go through this, all of the major topics of Christianity, maybe even controversial topics today, so that you know at least three verses that tell you about those very topics. So that you can have them written down in your Bible, uh, highlight them, make a note and say, if, I, if, if somebody is coming up to me and asking about this, well, here are the top three verses that I'm gonna go to, to tell them about it, right? So I think this is a, a very useful and very practical sort of thing. Um, Nancy, do you have the, the papers? Or did okay. you give them to me? No, I okay. I told you to hold on to them, because yeah. I would use them. <laughs> <laughs> so, <It's not> <laughs> this is, oh, this is really nice. Okay, so what I've done, <clears throat> Actually, what Nancy has done is she's uh, written down all of the texts here and uh, on a on a piece of paper for you, and we'll uh, we'll go through the verses together. However, I'm not going to hand this out yet because I want you to pay attention <laughs> to me and not to the paper. Um, so, what, what I want you to do, <laughs> what I want you to do, is actually, uh, if you have your Bible, to open up to these passages, and you can highlight it in your own Bible, and then I'll give you this as a resource, and then you you can kind of turn back to it, which would be helpful. Okay, with that being said, the first thing we're going to consider is Holy Scripture, and why we have the view of Holy Scripture that we do. In other words, what do the Scriptures say about themselves? Um, And... I just want to show you what the script, the top three verses. There are many, many verses. You can draw this out from other implications and things in the text. But my point is to say, just give me the clearest text on this. This is going to be helpful because you're going to have people who will say that you need the Bible. uh, But you also need reason to illuminate the Bible. Or you need tradition, the tradition of the church. So the Bible a dark book; it's obscure. Nobody can understand it. And then, but you need um, tradition, uh, the the church fathers or something, to make sense of this. Or you need your emotions; you need a burning in the bosom or something. Uh, you'll hear people say, "Well, the Bible contains errors, right?" Or the Bible is sees itself as just uh, a record of man, right? Man's just opinions about God. Um, or it's faulty. Or along with this, people will say, well, the times have changed. Okay, well, the Bible says this, but the times have changed. So, so it doesn't apply anymore. So what we have to do there is assert the, that the Scriptures are from God and be able to show that from the, from the text itself. So what does the Bible... It's self-authenticating. What, what does it say of itself? Okay, so the, uh, the top three verses... On Holy Scripture, I'm going to start with the third one, and work my way up. Uh, the third best text is going to be Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three. <clears throat> So, I'll I'll read this text to you. It says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and is and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, There's again with all these verses, there's so much we can we can grab from this. I want you to focus on the word, uh, the power of the word here and who is speaking. At, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, uh, various times or in various ways, God spoke God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In the last days, he's spoken to us by his son. <clears throat> this is what we would call progressive revelation. Right? So that... Uh, oh, here it is. Um, so, so progressive revelation is that you have... <clears throat> The very first instance, what is the first thing that God said, um, right, after the creation, uh, after the fall? So he's talking about the the fall into sin. He talks about the curse. And then he gives a promise. And it's the promise of uh, the Savior. That's Genesis 3.15, right? Um, That the, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and everything that he did to them. So Adam and Eve, what do they know about the Savior? What do they know?
1: It's not either
0: of them. Well, yeah, exactly. It's not found in them. It's going to be a descendant of the woman, of Eve. And that the word says seed, so it's going to be a singular one. And that it's the seed of the woman, which already is a problem, Uh, meaning the man is not going to have something to do with this. Right? Already in, in, Genesis, um, in Genesis 3.15, from that verse alone, they already know that the one that they're going to give birth to sometime along the line is going to redeem them from this. And he's going to be the, the hero. Right? <clears throat> we know this also because uh, it, it's not far-fetched to say or stretched to say, well, Adam and Eve completely understood this. Um, well, they did. They did understand this. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1 of Genesis says, uh, the English translation says something like, um, and, uh, and, and, and Adam knew Eve, and she said, uh, Behold, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord. Right? That's what she says. And the Hebrew doesn't even have with the help of in there. It just says, that's an interpretation. It just says, I, Behold, I've begotten a man, the Lord. That's, so she thought that the baby, she just gave birth. Well, I just heard the promise, and I just gave birth to a baby, and it's a boy. Okay, all right, so this must, I've begotten a, a, a man, the Lord. He's going to save me. All right, we're, we're safe. Then it turns out he's a murderer. He kills his brother, and she has other children, and they're waiting. They're waiting for the Messiah. And then they have some, th- this is Israel's history, right? that they, God gave this promise and then you have a descendant and then you get the book of Judges. Somebody becomes great, Samson. He's going to deliver us. Nope, he's going to throw it all away for Delilah, right? Okay, well then somebody else is going to come. Nope, they threw it all away. David, he's the guy. He just slayed Goliath. Nope, he's going to throw it all away for Uriah and, or Bathsheba and murder Uriah. So it's disappointment after disappointment and all these great, great judges and great leaders. And finally... Uh, you have Simeon uh, who holds the baby and says, now this is, this is him. This is, the, this is the one that was promised long ago. I know it. Um, <clears throat> but, so the point is that you have Genesis 3.15, you have this information, but it's enough. That's the essence or the content of our faith is that we believe that one who is man, but who is also the Lord will then redeem us. Well, then throughout the years, uh, you get the New Testament um, and, and even beyond that, we know more about Jesus than they did, right? That, that doesn't mean we're more saved or anything. Um, it, it just means we, we, God has revealed more so that we could find him. So that you have uh, uh, Genesis 3.15, that it's going to be born of a woman without a man. Then you're going to have the seed of Abraham so that God reveals, well, it's going to be actually one of the descendants of Abraham. And then it's going to be, in fact, even more specific, a descendant of Judah. And then, uh, in fact, more specifically, it's going to be a descendant of David. <laughs> so, so all this, this family tree is growing, and then the Lord keeps refining it and saying, no, this one, it's this one, this one, this one. Uh, to the point you get to Isaiah 7, and it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. <laughs> They're, they're hearing this and they, they already, by the time of Isaiah, they know, okay, it's going to be a, a, a virgin. And the sign will be what? That you'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. That's very specific. That's something Adam and Eve didn't know about. But the people in Isaiah's time learned about it, right? So, so they're learning this throughout time. And it's becoming more and more specific uh, that we also hear he's going to come out of Egypt. But he's also going to uh, come from Bethlehem. Uh, we hear about his deep humiliation. In fact, how he's going to be forsaken by God, Psalm 22. How he's going to be uh, um, uh, abused and uh, mistreated and sinned against in Isaiah, uh, the, the suffering servant, all of those chapters. So this is the progressive revelation. <clears throat> and the point is, who was revealing uh, all of these things to to? the world. What does Hebrews 1 say? God. God spoke, and he was telling them through the prophets, right? He, he reveals all of this information through the prophets. And it's cumulative, right? We're adding this up and finding, okay, well there's only one person in the history of the world who fits all of the descriptions, all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. That's going to be Jesus. It's unmistakable. Nobody fits that, right? Um, okay, well what, what, do, what does uh, Hebrews 1 say? Well, God spoke to these people uh, long ago in many ways. He told them many different things. He told Isaiah one thing. It never contradicted, but he told Isaiah more than he told any of the others, right? But it was still God speaking. Um, <clears throat> he also told them in different ways. How did he talk to Moses? Throat burning bush, right? How did he talk to Jeremiah and Isaiah? directly, right? He, they, they, uh, remember Isaiah says, um, he, he runs to his father and says, yes, you called me. And then he says, no, it was the Lord, right? And then finally he, he says, here I am, here I am. Um, how does he talk to uh, Elijah? How does he talk? So he talks to them in different ways. But it was God talking the whole time. And then finally it says, but now in these last days, and talks about the New Testament on He has spoken to us by his, and then you have his son, Christ. So, God spoke in many and various ways, but now he does not. Rather, he speaks only through his son. In other words, he has placed, what Hebrews 1 is teaching us is that it places the the words of Jesus and the words of the prophets on the same level. If you accept the words of the prophets, then you are to accept the words of Jesus. (laughs) Do you see this? This idea that you, you accept um, the, the prophets but not Jesus like, like the Jews do, uh, they're, they're missing this. They're missing. It's, a, it's an incomplete message. They've lost it, right? It, it just cuts off right in the middle. But then he says, now he's spoken to us by his son. Uh, so they're, they're speaking on the same level. Yeah. Aren't the Jews still waiting for the Savior? Mm-hmm. Because they had all these. He's going to be an easy man. Yeah still waiting. they're still waiting so yeah exactly so they've trailed off and that's the last they've heard from God was um, uh, Malachi so they say that's it that's the last time he spoke to us um, we had this intertestamental period of this time of silence and then nothing so we're waiting we're waiting and what what are they waiting for They're they're waiting for the political kingdom they're, they're waiting for something physical from the Messiah. So that's, that's chiefly why they rejected Christ. And they said, well, look, you came here and you died. Um, that's not what our Savior's supposed to do. Our Savior's supposed to be someone like Samson, who, who's a great leader, and David. Like, he's balled up all, all in one, and he's going to make the Jews prosperous. I preached about this on Trinity 10 this year, um, about four, yeah, four Sundays ago. Uh, how... <clears throat> that the issue is that they're waiting for this um, because they hold on to the teaching or the idea that God has chosen Israel. That, so they say Israel is God's chosen nation. Yes, they are. Or, or sorry, yes, they were, I should say. Are they now? No. Because you have to say, well, they're chosen, but for what? What, what were they chosen for? Well, for this, to, to lead them. So God separated the nation of Israel through all those things. This is why the walls of Jericho came down was because he was preserving Israel through all of these, all of these military victories. It was to keep those people alive so that one of the descendants would stay alive and then that's where the Christ would come from. Yeah. Did,
1: did he choose the Jews
0: because they believed in one God? Is that why he chose the Jews? No, actually, I think it's... in. Oh, I'm trying to remember. I think it's Deuteronomy 6, or the first six chapters of Deuteronomy, um, where God tells Israel why he chose them. And he says, I did not choose you because you were many or because you were great, but because you were the least. <laughs> he, yeah, he tells them, he says, because you were the least uh, of all the people. And this is just how God does things. It's, this is his character. He uses always the littlest, the, the smallest, the, the most measly little thing to do something amazing, right? So he does this with Israel. Israel's just this small group of people. They're not strong. They're not warriors. The best guy they have to fight uh, Goliath is David, who's a pipsqueak, right? And, and he throws a rock, but he kills him, right? That's amazing, um, and the, Goliath is, over, oh, is nine feet tall, right? He's the, he never loses a battle. Um, so you get these sort of things throughout the scriptures. But yeah, I think it's Deuteronomy 6 where, where he says, this is why I chose you, uh, was in, in fact uh, to show his own power. He chooses what is weak and lowly in the world so that his power could be made known. Because we, we would say, well, Israel would never save, nothing good is going to come out of Israel. Remember what they said of uh, Nazareth? Well, what good comes out of Nazareth? The Savior of the world, right? So God, this is the way God works. Okay, the, the point here is that he's making this connection. The prophets are not the final word of God, but it is now uh, Christ. I, I know this is a secondary text, maybe like a sub-point. You say, well, he's spoken to us by his son, so shouldn't we just hold to the words of Jesus alone? And uh, what about the apostles? Well, look at... Um, Luke 10, 16. This is a sub-point. <clears throat> this is good to, to keep in mind. This is not for all people. Um, this, Jesus is speaking specifically in this context. He's speaking specifically to his uh, apostles. He says, the one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me Rejects the one who sent me, that is the Father. Uh, so he's saying, if, if you want to hear what Jesus says, then what do you listen to? What the apostles said. What did the apostles say? Well, they talk about Jesus, right? So he, he, he makes this connection. So, okay, so you have all the prophets uh, culminate and find their uh, fullness in Christ. And then the, you have the 12 apostles, right, uh, who, are, who then speak the Lord speaks through them. Okay, so that's the first text. And uh, long ago, in uh, many ways, he spoke to the people of old by the prophets, but now he has spoken to us by his son. The second text I want to show you is 2 Peter 121. Um, okay. 2 Peter one twenty one says, this is the second best text on this authority of the scriptures um, and what they are. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so the point here, again, is talking about the prophets and now Jesus and the apostles. Well, how did they speak and write? Uh, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit himself so that he caused them uh, to write these things. That scripture in its parts are divinely inspired, they're infallible, uh, they're inerrant, and it's the way that we teach salvation. Do you guys know the difference between inerrant and infallible? Uh, Inerrant means without errors, right? Um, So it... uh, so the Bible contains no errors, right? What is infallible? Not possible to make yes, yes, that's it. It is, it cannot fail. So inerrant says it didn't fail. It didn't, it didn't ha- have any errors. But infallible says it cannot fail make errors. <laughs> it cannot fail. So this is the, how we speak of the Scriptures. Well, why do we speak of the Scriptures in that way, in such a high way? not only that they're inerrant, but also that they're infallible? Well, because who's the one speaking? God. Can God lie or, or make any mistakes? No. So therefore, uh, if He has caused these words to be written, and th- it wasn't produced by the will of man, but men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, well then, it is then the words themselves. That, that the Lord has given. Um, I want to uh, clarify something here. The very words of, scriptures, of the Scriptures uh, were inspired. There's an idea that's going around that says um, only the thoughts or the ideas of the Scriptures is what the Holy Spirit inspired. So that, um, so that it's that the Holy Spirit kind of puts it in their mind, the idea, and then they just kind of write down the, to the best of their ability or something. But the Lutheran view of this, and, and according to the scriptures, is that uh, the Lord um, causes the very words to be written. All of them. So this is what we call uh, verbal inspiration. We say that the, the very words themselves were writ- were caused to be written and chosen by the Holy Spirit. Um, Okay, let me show you the, the last text, which is the strongest text. First uh, Timothy, uh sorry, 2 Timothy 3.16. Yeah. Sorry, from the inerrancy thing. So would
1: we say that the scriptures are inerrant in the original
0: manuscripts, given
1: however minor the variations of the five in different languages and studies, and then coming off of that would have
0: helped that we then relate to what we have here, or are we limiting that also through just the original manuscripts? Yeah, good question. Um So, yeah, the question is, uh, is the original, uh, the inerrant and infallible text or the copies? And we say the original is the um, inerrant and infallible. So what the the apostles wrote uh, with their hands or through their scribe. Uh, What follows there, we have variations in the text. Uh, Bruce Metzger did a a study on this, and he showed that 99.9% of all of the variations in the text are minor, Right, So people throw this, this statistic out and say, well, uh, there's so many different variations of the text. We, we can't be sure what the Bible actually said back then. Well, um, he says, okay, so he, he gathered them all up and he did this study and then found that 99.9% of them are so minor that it's, it doesn't change the meaning of the text. For example, one, what, what they would do is they would have the Bible, they'd, there'd be a bunch of scribes. Because you don't have a printer, so you have to say, everybody has to write it down by hand. So I'm going to read it out loud, and then all of you guys, who are the most educated people, are going to write it. Okay. Some people probably weren't as good as students or something, right? So, um, or maybe got distracted or something. Or switched it in their mind. So that the, the, the scribe would read, well, we have the text here, and it says, Jesus Christ. Then somebody writes, Christ Jesus. Okay, it's the same thing, but that counts as an error. Boom, it's already different. Uh, or uh, the, a, a difference of, um, I don't know, spelling, like phonetics. If, if you spell uh, phone with an F or a PH. Okay, well, that, that's, that's technically a difference, so they mark that. But you get what it's saying, right? So then only like 0.1% of the differences are are. are, uh, are are significant. And when we say significant, uh, it's like a definite article changed from A to indefinite to, or indefinite article of A to the, or the to A, or some, something like this. So, um, yeah, so we would say, as, as Lutherans, we say that the original is inspired and infallible, and then the copies are subject to mistake because they weren't inspired or, or infallible. Um, what was the other question? Or, did I, I okay like, you know, what we have in our hands now Yeah Right Right in fact if you guys want you could go back and listen to um, the first AIC uh, recording that I had this summer and I talked a little bit there about the uh, about the scriptures as well. Um, so anyway, just keep, keep that in mind. We can, th- this is always a fascinating discussion on that. But wh- what I want to do is tell you that the Bible you have in front of you is reliable. I know I point out a lot of little variations in the text. Again, it's not changing the big meaning. Uh, what was it, two Sundays ago, we had the Pharisee and the tax collector, uh, and the the, the the tax collector in English says, uh, God Be merciful to me, a sinner. And in fact, the original Greek is, God propitiate me, or atone for my sins, the sinner. I think that's pretty significant. And it's not that uh, all of the Bibles are wrong. In fact, if you look at some of the older translations, like King James and stuff, they'll have the right, the better translation. So anyway, what you have is reliable. I'm not trying to destroy your confidence in the Bible. In fact, it is the most reliable historical book ancient historical document in the world. But by far, it blows everything else out of the water. Uh, just go listen to, to that one uh, the recording over the summer. Okay, finally, this last text, 2 Timothy 3.16, this is the strongest text we have. Um, and this is where you want to go. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This not only talks about what the scriptures are, but also what they're useful for, what the what the purpose and goal of them are. But look, when it says all scripture, that is everything that is written down that way. God is speaking through the prophets or the apostles. This is, and then it has this word breathed out by God. That is not in the Greek, in the original. That's not in the Greek. Uh, the breathed out by God. We have to translate this because it's actually one word. Um, in in the Greek, if you want to see it, what uh, uh, Theopanustus, right? Um, It is... Oh, sorry. Os. Okay. Theopneustos. It's one word. Theo, which means... Whoops. What does theo mean? Theo. God. God. Yeah, theology. Um, Theo. And then penustos. Yeah, like pneumonia. Right? Whenever you get that, uh, uh, it's of the lungs. Meaning it is from the... From the lungs or the breath of God. That's one word. So we have to translate it. Because we don't have a word like that in English. We don't say... Well, the NIV has God that, that's a really good... Yeah. Although I don't like the NIV all that much. That, they actually translated that pretty well. Um, holding to the original. It's, this is called in Greek a hapax legomenon, Meaning it, it's a funny word. But it means it, it occurs once in the scriptures. And this is the only time it's coming up in the scriptures. So Paul kind of invents a word to say, how do do I say what is actually, how do I make this so direct? Well, I'm going to invent a word, theoponistos, right? That God himself is breathing out these words and they're profitable uh, for teaching, for reproof, for correcting. In other words, what we can say of the scriptures is this, uh, of all these texts, Hebrews 1, 2 Peter 1, 2 Timothy 3, there are many... Writers, but there is one author. Uh, God is the author of, of all of them. God spoke, singular, through the prophets, plural. Uh, men, plural, spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, singular. God breathed, singular. All old scripture, that's a lot of things, breathed out by one source, God. Do you see this? So these are the three texts. So if somebody asks you and says, well, uh, how do we know that the the, the um, wh- what does the Bible say about itself? Uh, what do the scriptures? How do they view themselves? Well, the authors knew, and they wrote it of this in this way that they were speaking for God, and you you know this in the scriptures. Uh, this is also it's you can some other text you can find in the Old Testament. Thus de- says the Lord. <laughs> what are they saying? <laughs> that they're saying this. It, this is it, if. I'm, I'm the one saying it, but God, these are God's words, right? Okay, um, let's look at the next issue here, which is the efficacy of the word. And this one's interesting. Okay, so uh, what does efficacy mean? Um. What, what does efficacy mean? It's able to do what it says. Or it's, it's efficacious, that, that it's able to accomplish the thing it's, it's doing. So we say that the word is efficacious, or the efficacy of the word. So let's start with the third best text, uh, which is going to be um, Romans 1.16. Romans Uh, While you're looking that up, I'll tell you, uh, there's some objections to the Word of God here. People will uh, object to the efficacy of the Word. They say, okay, fine, we agree that the Bible is breathed out by God. But the Bible is really just kind of a bunch of information. So the Word alone, the Bible, can't really convert anybody. That we need something else. Uh, We need to use a method or a technique. um, Or maybe you've heard this, the Word doesn't do anything unless you... Act upon it, yeah, unless you do something, uh, unless you, you, you uh, uh, yeah, unless, unless the, the change is in you first. Uh, how many of you have heard the acronym, right? When people speak of the Bible, they say it's an acronym, Acronym. And they say it's uh, basic instructions before leaving earth, right? You've heard this? Okay, how does that chiefly view the Bible, Oh, that's that's one thing. That's one, yeah, basic instructions. That's what an instruction is. And two, as an instruction manual, right? And I think Pastor uh, Brian Wolfmuller talks about this too. He says, um, "How do you treat instruction manuals?" I have a drawer dedicated. <laughs> It's just the next step before throwing something away. I, I put something in that drawer. It, the instruction manual, it, you never read it. I, I don't sit down with my sons and say, here, look, <laughs> this is where the battery goes. We, we don't care where it was manufactured. What do, you, what do you do, though? You do sit down and read letters. Uh, you, you, if you have a birthday card, then you open it up for them and you read it to them. And they say, what did they say? Well, because this was written for you. Okay, the, you, the way you treat an instruction manual and the way you, you, you treat letters are totally different. So I don't think it's so helpful to talk about the Bible as an instruction manual, right? You just toss it in the closet. But it's a letter from God. Well, who's talking? It's God. He's talking to you. He's telling you something. Okay, so, so this idea, but the idea is that the Bible is just information. It's just instructional And uh, it's kind of like um, a resource. So if times are tough, go to it. But that's not the way the scriptures speak of themselves. They speak of themselves as powerful. So the first text is Romans 1.16. This is the third best text we have. um, And it says this. uh, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is it? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the words. He's talking about the proclamation, the things he's saying. Why would he be ashamed of it, right? Well, because people say, well, this is ridiculous. This is absurd. It's foolish. Uh, We have philosophers talking about amazing things and people talking about how to change and reform your life. And then you're coming around talking about a God who died and bled. Uh, And he says, I'm not ashamed of it because that message Those words are the power of who? Of God. Unto what? Salvation. Um, The Bible says, uh, right? The the idea that people have is is that the the word doesn't have power unless you act upon it. But the Bible uh, says that it has power in and of itself apart from you. Um, Even before it reaches your ears, that word is powerful, The word, in other words, the word doesn't require you to act upon it to be powerful. The word acts upon you in power. Um, The Bible is not simply information, right? Uh, Another text, don't write this down, but if, or mentally make a note. Jeremiah 23, 29, he says, Is not my word like a hammer that breaks hearts? So what's going to bring someone to repentance? The word. That's that's what it is uh, going to be. Yeah. Yeah, some kind of power, dynamis, dynamite. Mm-hmm. yeah that's uh, Denimus. Yeah, is um, that's where we get the word today. Dynamite. So you want to you, you want to make a, a road through a mountain. You blow it up. Well, this is the uh, this is the power of the word that it explodes. It demolishes the things that are before it. Uh, that the Lord would would go to your heart, okay, so that 's the first one. Romans one16, it is the power of God. The second text is isaiah fifty five um, isaiah fifty five ten through eleven <clears throat> And this text says it 's describing what the Word of God does through an analogy by by drawing some comparison here. And it says, "'For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven "'and do not return there but water the earth, "'making it bring forth and sprout, "'giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, "'so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. "'It shall not return to me empty, "'but it shall accomplish that which I purpose.'" And shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Um, in other words, God's word is accomplishing things. Water coming down from heaven changes the ground. It changes the, the, what it falls upon. Um, it, it brings forth fruit. It, it makes things grow. Um, now, what's, what's the objection that people will bring out here? Okay, there's that. When it rains, um, not everything grows, right? So, meaning, yes, the Word is preached now, but a lot of people reject it. So, how could you say that the Word, is, the word of God is doing something when obviously it's not? Obviously, some people are, are not uh, being changed by it. Okay, the point here, this doesn't mean that the, the word doesn't work or act in those cases. It means that God allows his word to be rejected. Um, let, let me ask you, uh, if you have seed and you plant it in the ground um, and it rains upon it, is the water doing what water is supposed to do? Yeah, it's watering. If the seed doesn't grow, what's the problem? probably a messed up seed, or it's, it's dead, or so, something is, is wrong with it that it's, that it's not going to work. Um, well, in the same way here, the Word of God works, uh, but God, in this way, He allows Himself to be rejected and despised. Um, there's a difference in the way that God speaks to us and the way He speaks to creation and the way He speaks to objects. Uh, in creation, he just says things and it happens. Let there be light and, and there's light. Um, but to us, he speaks and there's resistance. And we don't listen. And we despise him. Right? And this happens for, for a lot of time. Uh, we, we could preach till we're blue in the face that the Lord loves the world, that he spilled his blood for the world, and people are going to yawn at it and not care. Well, they're just despising uh, the word of God. This doesn't mean that um, the word is not powerful, but it's, it's that for some reason, God in his wisdom has allowed himself to be rejected, and he will allow himself to be rejected by us. That's a scary thing, <laughs> if you think about it. Um, People, now, I know there's a tension here. So then we say, well, if God's Word works and accomplishes what the point is, and yet people reject it, then what's going on here? What's the issue? Well, there's, I'll tell you this, there's no solution. I'll tell you that up front. This Bible doesn't tell us. There are people who try to resolve it, and what do they say? On the one hand, uh, there's two ways to resolve it. One is to say, well, the Word is ineffective. It doesn't do what it says, So there's a problem with the Word, and we have to make it more engaging or make it come alive or something. Wrong. That's not true. The Bible says it's effective, it's efficacious, period. So therefore, that's what goes. Why? Because God said it. Um, But the second problem is this. They'll talk about irresistible grace. right? Irresistible grace and then double predestination go together. So they say, well, um, if God's Word always does what it says uh, and, and, and converts everybody that's supposed to be converted, we can't resist the Lord. He doesn't allow himself to be rejected. So he con- uh, converts everyone. And not everyone is therefore converted. What does that mean? So if, if he can convert everyone uh, and his, his word... Yeah, if he can convert everyone and he does, whom the word uh, reaches, and not everyone is converted... Then, not, everyone's heard it. Not, not just that not everyone's heard it, but even the ones who've heard it, he has not chosen. He didn't want to convert them. So th- that's a very different issue here. Now, that's called double predestination is to say, well, I'm only saving the people I want to be, I want to save. And that's what John Calvin did. He, he came up with this idea and says, he has this tension. And he says, well, it is the word of God and it does accomplish things, but not everyone is saved. So I'm going to resolve this in my mind. And the, the, the answer is, is that God doesn't actually want to save everyone. Uh, we don't see that attitude in God at all in the scriptures. That's not in his character. He says, I don't desire the death of the wicked, but I long, I wish that they would return and repent. He tells Jerusalem, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets that are sent to you, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not." So here we have this really fascinating thing that if somebody is converted, who's who's, uh, who gets the glory for that? God. And if somebody is condemned, whose fault is it? Yours. Do you see this? Uh, John Calvin would say God converts and he's also the reason some aren't converted. So if somebody goes to heaven, it's because God makes them go to heaven. And if somebody goes to hell, it's because God wants them to go to hell. On the other side, you have the Arminians who say, well, it's all on you. God's word is just information. So if you go to hell, it's your fault. But if you go to heaven, it's it's you. You did it. And the Lutherans hold both scriptures at the same time and say, well, I can't convert myself. God did it. But if I'm damned, then it is my fault. I have no one else to blame but, but myself. Did you have a question? Or? I have a question about um, the word um, being powerful. So, you know, I, what I've come out of is this whole word
1: of faith. Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah, so, so th- uh, the analogy I use here is that it's not the prayer itself that is powerful, but the one to whom you pray. So the analogy here is um, Martin will come up to me and say, hey, uh, can you open this for me? And then I open it, and because I'm stronger than he is, or I should be. <laughs> uh, <and> then, <laughs> so I open it for him, or I do something for him. Well it wasn't his words that did anything. It's who he's talking to. So he says, well, okay, I have the power. Now I'm going to do this. So uh, I want to be careful that we don't say that uh, the, the power is in the prayer itself as if my words are causing something to happen. Rather, the, the, thing, the reason the prayer is powerful is because it's in the ears of the one who holds all power, uh, authority over heaven and earth. Um, so... Uh, So that's the first thing. The second thing is this, is that the word of God has power to do what it has promised to do. So if God says, um, I don't know, to to preach this word and that he would convert the hearts of unbelievers, well, then that's what we expect the word of God to do. But if the word of God um, never says, pray, and then you'll get... um, I don't know, speak this word and then you'll get a a Ferrari. (laughs) Uh, then, Then we shouldn't test God and say, well, you said your word is powerful and I'm gonna kind of, you know, I'm gonna run a test on it and see if I can get something else. So the thing is, yes, God has promised things and we claim the things that he's promised, but we don't claim the things that he hasn't promised. We ask for those things with the condition that it's according to God's will, right? So yeah, I mean, if you want a Ferrari, if you want a, a great car, great. Pray to God for it, but don't expect that, it, that you will get it, right? But you, uh, because God may have a different plan, right? Um, when it comes to daily bread, pray for that, because God fully, and, and without reservation or doubt, because God fully intends on giving you daily bread every single day of your life. So... But that's the distinction. So we don't want to take the word of God and then rip it out of the context and say, "Well, therefore, because it's powerful, I'm just going to speak it over anything and cause things to happen." So, uh, oh, yes. So, yeah. What um, if God wants us to love Him and
1: worship Him? Yeah. But if He demanded it, that would be a different thing. Then everybody would love Him, but they would have Mm.
0: Yeah, so if, uh, yeah, if, if free will is kind of removed completely, then, uh, then we have a problem, right? So could God force us all to bow down to him? He will uh, in, in the future, but, um, but now he's not. And um, could, could he force us all to believe? Sure, but is that uh, belief, or could he force us to love him? Sure. But is that genuine love? Right? Uh, so, so we would say no. So the, we have the ability to reject it. And uh, for some reason, God has, in his wisdom, decided it, that we would, um, he wants to convert us. He wants what is genuine. He wants our hearts. Uh, so he, he does demand these things. He does say, you shall have no other gods before me. But the ones who don't do so, not just out of Fear, but out of love and trust in God, um, yeah.
1: It is a common theme throughout the Bible, um, with the Jews uh, being chosen and so forth. Every time they become full of themselves, then boom, they fall down. Yeah. David, you know, was a, a faithful person until he became full of himself as a king. Yeah. Boom, he falls down. Solomon gets wisdom. Until, you know, he lets that, you know, he gets all his women, and then he falls down. So the Bible's full of everybody is is, is going to fail unless they put, you know, God first and so forth. Some people get the Word of God. They still don't want to listen to the Word of God. Yeah. They will not give in, whatever, you know, it's there, and they, they're going to still rely on themselves. And so they've chosen that route to go. Right. It seems like that's the common theme. And, that, and so how are some people... Condemned to hell. I mean, even when Judas, you know, betrayed Jesus, he could have been saved, but did he believe that God was saved? I mean, Mm. he's looking to himself. So if you look to yourself and push God away, you've you've made your choice.
0: Right, exactly. So we'll put it this way. Um, You have the choice, but only to reject God. That's your choice. Uh, But you cannot accept him. right? He... He, he causes that, right? He gives you life. So it's, uh, compared to, to living, um, the Spirit gives life. How were you born? Did you did you ask to be born? No. Did you ask to be born on a certain month? No. Did you choose your parents? No. But what choice do you have now that you're alive? You have the choice to destroy your life. You have the choice to kill yourself. But you don't have the choice to make yourself alive. Do you see? In the same way, this is how... That, Life and death is the same way with our spirit. You don't have the choice to make yourself a Christian. God makes you a Christian. You do have the choice to what? To not be, right? You have the choice to destroy your faith if you want to. Uh, I don't recommend it. I think that's a bad idea. Um, But you do have that choice then. Uh, So this is the point. So it's not that the word of God isn't efficacious. It's that it is, but he allows you... He gives you the choice to reject it only. I, I don't know. That's, the, that's what God has done. Um, OK, let me look at the last uh, text, the number one text here. This is John 663. <clears throat> Again, if, if we don't have the time, we don't have the time to do this here, but if you want, you can go read these texts in context and you'll see that all of it is pointing down to these things. Um, John 6, says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Uh, in other words, only the words of Christ contain spirit and life. They give spirit and life. So do you see what he does here? He says, it is the spirit who gives life. Okay? The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. So he, he, they're, they're connected. Where do, you, do you want the spirit? Yeah. Well, where do you go? To his words. And if you have his words, then you have his spirit. He's connected them so deeply to one another in this way. Um, the, the flesh is of no help at all. So if someone doesn't get the spirit or life, uh, from the words of Jesus, the problem is not his words. The problem is the person. So look at what Jesus says. He doesn't say my words are spirit and life. If you believe them, my words are spirit and and life. If you do them, he says, my words are spirit and life period. So what is his word? Spirit and life. um, If you refuse and you reject that word, then you reject the Spirit and you reject the life He brings. So again, uh, what what's going on here is: does the word does the Bible you have on your nightstand in your in your lap right now does that? But what is it? It it is Spirit and life. Is it powerful? Absolutely. It converts people. I mean, th- think about this. It converts people. It, it, it has converted your hearts. Saul was murdering Christians. And then he went from murdering them to becoming a martyr. How? How? Somebody explain it to me. How did that happen? And he says, well, it's the scriptures. It's the word of Christ. Okay, let's look at one final text here or one final issue, which is law and gospel. And I can pick up uh, some of this stuff next time. Uh, some of these details, but uh, so long. Gospel, the third best text we have on this is Romans three nineteen through twenty six. Now, the, while you look that up, I want to talk about what long gospel is. A lot of people will say, "Well, long gospel." I know we hear this a lot in Lutheran churches. Well, you guys kind of made this up. This is a paradigm that you've inserted into the scriptures, and it's just some sort of uh, thing. Uh, some, some system of ideas that you have, and it's a category that you guys invented. The point is, no. Uh, law and gospel is not a Lutheran thing. It's a scriptural thing. It's a, it's a God thing. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's from God himself. Uh, God is the one who, who reveals law and gospel, and law and gospel are not categories of a system. Law and gospel is the substance of scripture, that's, it's the very substance of it. So Romans three nineteen through 26 says, uh, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. To those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So there's another thing. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of... So what's the other thing that's been re, uh, revealed apart from the law? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the, the purpose of the law here is to silence and stop every mouth. Uh, and to say that everyone is guilty before God. Uh, heathens were obviously guilty before God because they, they lived manifest uh, lives this way. But the Jews were guilty before God too. But what was the problem there? The, the Jews lived kind of good lives. So this is why when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, what is he talking about? He's not talking about the amount. He's talking about... The kind of righteousness. They have an outward righteousness. They look good. But Jesus says, you don't have to look righteous. You have to be righteous. He says, you have to have a righteousness of the heart. So this is why he says, "Uh, you've heard it uh, said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman lustfully, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is the exceeding righteousness that, he's re- that the law requires. So he's talking about this. This is the pu- purpose of the law. No one can escape the accusation of the law. And this is where we talk about the law, the purpose of it as a mirror or the theological use that you look back at yourself and you see what your heart is. So notice that Paul even says there's a distinction between the law and what it does and then the righteousness which is revealed by faith. The righteousness of God in faith. Okay, next text uh, will end up here. Galatians 3. Let me, I know I'm speeding through this, but um, Galatians 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Curse be everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For... The righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. That's what the law says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Uh, Let me,